There's some new faces around the federal cabinet table for the Liberals as the Prime Minister unveiled the new bench to lead the country out of the pandemic and toward recovery. 39 ministers in all, including a couple of new portfolios, emergency preparedness and housing. But will this group get the job done? Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. While the new government signaled they'd wanted to get down to business right away, it still took more than a month to name the new cabinet. And this government won't be sitting in the House for another three weeks. Creating a cabinet requires more than just picking your strengths or your favorites. Gender, geography, experience, electoral success will all play a part. Now, this current crop of cabinet ministers features many faces that have slipped over the last few years. And our unpublished vote question asks, which cabinet minister will be the first to be shuffled out? Melanie Jolie in Foreign Affairs at 22.5%. Anita Anand in Defense at 12.4%. Stephen Guilbeau in Environment at 29.2%. Jean-Yves Duclos in Health at 7.9%. Patty Haidu in Indigenous Affairs at 16.9%. Other at 4.5%. And none of the above, 6.7%. Now, however you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or our podcast channel iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote and then email your MP to tell them why. Joining us to discuss the new cabinet, I am pleased to be joined by Tasha Carradine, public policy analyst and public uh, political commentator. Nelson Wiseman is a professor of political science at the University of Toronto. And Mario Canseco is the president of Research Co. in Vancouver. And we'll start off with you, Tasha. And in terms of this cabinet, what's your overall view? My overall view, really, Ed, is that it's um, it's in line with Trudeau's vision of big government. He's got key players such as uh, Christopher Freeland um, in the uh, in the big, I guess, the biggest chair you could have, deputy PM and finance at the same time. He's got um, people who share his vision on the environment, even perhaps a little further uh, in the progressive vein in the form of Mr. Gilbo. Um, and he's also put a lot of emphasis on, again, uh, you know, parity uh, of women and men, representation in terms of regions. That was a takeaway I found very interesting because it has both electoral and economic implications. Every economic development, uh, I guess, ministry, for lack of better words, it is now a ministry, has its own minister. So you've got a lot of focus on regional economic development across the country, which implies a lot of money will probably be flowing to sustain that. Uh, Nelson, when you look at uh, the size of a cabinet, and, and this is one of the bigger ones, is that an indication of big plans or is it an ind indication of something else? Well, to me, it's just an indication that he's trying to uh, please a lot of potential constituencies by having all the boxes tick off. Natasha mentioned the number, you know, gender parity, uh, visible racialized Canadians, regions, that sort of thing. Um, the, the larger the cabinet is, the less significant the total cabinet is. Because what happens is that, in effect, you end up having an inner cabinet, and you have all of these cabinet committees on which ministers sit, although they don't attend, some of them don't attend very often. And then whatever they do gets reported back up. My other general observation is that cabinet doesn't count for as much as it used to, no matter what the size is. And that is because of the concentration of power in the PMO. For example, we have 
all these ministries now, departments responsible for economic development in this region and in that region. But in, in the PMO now, we have regional desks. And so once upon a time, if you were the minister, let us say from Saskatchewan, you signed off on things that were gonna happen in Saskatchewan. Now, hey, there's somebody in the prime minister's office who's got the prime minister's ear that's working on this. So that whole dynamic has changed. Uh, Mario, the distribution of, of ministers, we've got four in Atlanta, Canada, we have four for British Columbia, none for Manitoba. Um, you know, obviously you like to reward those who, who, uh, obviously help you get elected, but, you know, by shutting out a province, are you, are you not, you know, we hear about division all the time. Is that not just going to lead to more division? I think it will. And it's certainly something that is changing over time. You know, after the 2015 election, when Justin Trudeau got, uh, the most votes for any liberal party leader since 1968 in British Columbia, uh, BC had a seat at the table. Uh, we had the justice minister, we had the defense minister, and now we have neither. So, I mean, it's not as dire as the days of Jan Cretien's governments when we only had a minister of Western diversification, whatever that meant, because nobody could explain it to us here in BC. Um, but it's not the same thing that we had. And I think, you know, part of it is 2015 was a very monumental success for the Liberals. Uh, they got more than a third of the vote. If we go back to the 2011 election under Michael Ignatieff, they only had two seats. So it's changing. I think it's going back to the way BC has always voted, where the uh, center-right uh, gets more votes and the Liberals are in second or in third place. And I think it shows with the cabinet because we do have ministers. We just don't have the ministers that are as important as the ones we had in the two previous cabinets. Tasha, well, uh, when we're taking a look at uh, appointments, uh, sometimes they're they're meant to send a message, uh, whether it, it, it's, it's a message for the minister or maybe a message for the portfolio or where they're going to be going. Uh, what's the message, in your opinion, by putting Stephen Gwilbo in environment? <laughs> well, the message we've already seen uh, is uh, basically, a, I guess, a bit of a slap in the face to Alberta, and it's been received as such. Um, You've got uh, Gilbo at environment slash climate change and uh, Mr. Wilkinson at resources and uh, the combination of that, especially Mr. Gilbo's record uh, with Greenpeace and Ekater is clearly anti-oil and there's you know, no bones about it. Uh, the prime minister at COP26 was, uh, was very clear on where he's going in terms of uh, the you know eventual end of oil production. I mean, this is something that is a great concern to Alberta. And I think also um, the failure to recognize the efforts being made by industry there to find ways to exploit oil to get it out of the ground in a more environmentally um, or ecologically friendly fashion with things like carbon capture and others. You know, uh, Mr. Gilbo is not really known for recognizing those things either. So I think that overall, um, you know, this isn't, it, it's not friendly to to that region, to Alberta and to Saskatchewan too. And I think that um, the Liberals did try and, you know, they also appointed um, an MP from Edmonton to, to their cabinet. Um, but I think that overall, I think that their expectation is probably that they're not going to be uh, cultivating great gains in the West. Um, they're using that to cultivate gains in the East and the markets they think will be favorable to their environmental views. It seems a bit self-defeating. You're not even going to, you know, try to participate out in Alberta. Well, it is. It is somewhat self-defeating. I think that, um, you know, it's uh, it, it clearly sets up a, 
an opposition to Jason Kenney. And I think that there's a vulnerability that Trudeau senses there, which he will translate to the federal conservatives. It already happened in the last election, the sense that Mr. Kenney's fortunes are also tied to those of uh, Mr. O'Toole's and the federal Tories. And so anything he can do to uh, to create uh, discord, I guess, or to uh, to pick at those, those bad fortunes um, in Alberta, is sort of a boon to, electorally was a boon to the Liberals in the last election. And every organizer I spoke to said that once uh, Mr. Kenny had to reverse himself on um, COVID mandates because of what was happening there, it was welcome news in the Liberal ranks and the Tories were just, you know, devastated. In the last few days, it made a big difference in the campaign. So I think he's going to pursue that strategy of division, which I think is very unfortunate. Uh, what do you think, Nelson? Uh, Stephen Guilbo, obviously, uh big into climate change and now the minister of environment uh it did not go over well in in alberta and and do you think that was a plan or or they're trying to you know work to his strength uh let me just push back on a couple of things if i'm not mistaken sure. um, ed you suggested that manitoba didn't have a cabinet minister yeah didn't jim carlos well but it does although i have no idea what he looks like his name is vandal and he worked and he's in the Portfolio of Veterans Affairs, which is not a terribly important portfolio, but it just goes to show that if they elect anybody, and in fact, there are a number of uh, liberal MPs from Manitoba, so he had a choice. Van Dahl won't have much impact on anything, in my opinion, and he's just there as the adornment to be able to say to Manitobans, we have somebody. Now, let me get back to your point about mm. Gibo and Tasha. Tasha's point about him. Uh, what strikes me about Debo isn't how out of the mainstream he is, but how he's come around. Here, he's already pointed out, hey, he supported buying the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline as a cabinet minister. He supports the, uh, uh, the Line 5, which is now contentious in the United States. I don't, they're not going to shut down outfits like Suncor. The reality is we're moving into a different world, and I think it's going to be measured. But the oil industry is going to continue. It won't be operating the way it would have otherwise. Now, with respect to Kenny, it doesn't matter who Trudeau would have appointed. Kenny is such a rabid partisan, he would have attacked. Whoever Trudeau appointed, remember, remember, Trudeau's first natural resources minister was a Westerner, Jim Carr. That didn't keep uh, uh, Kenny and other Westerners from attacking the federal liberals. The reality is the federal liberals haven't really been viable in Western Canada, except for some seats in Winnipeg and Vancouver, since 1953, and nobody was talking environment then. There's a whole host of regional uh, issues that that explain why the West doesn't, and I and I am from Manitoba, why the West doesn't vote for liberals. And I can give you uh, a couple of examples. One of them is what led to the rise of the Reform Party, which was that in 1987. Uh, there was um, a, bid, a bidding contract going out for uh, maintenance of the CF-18 fighters that Canada's Air Force flies. And although the 
the Winnipeg bid, there was a Winnipeg bid, a Montreal bid. The Winnipeg bid was superior. It was recommended by the bureaucracy. It was cheaper. No, the contract went to Montreal because the Mulroney cabinet was Quebec heavy. Similarly, in the past week, we've had this storm about the fact that the CEO of Air Canada, whose name is Russo, doesn't speak French. But the real issue here isn't why isn't that he doesn't speak French. My problem is why is Air Canada headquartered in Quebec? That's what a Westerner would say. The hub for Air Canada de facto is in Toronto. Moreover, Air Canada used to have its overhaul and maintenance facilities in Winnipeg. Those also got shifted to Montreal when Air Canada was a private, a, a public corporation back in the 60s under the senior Trudeau. Why? Because the majority of his caucus was also from Quebec. So the West has historically lost out because it hasn't had the numbers. But that is now changing because Alberta is getting more seats and, and BC as well. This has really happened in the last 20, 30 years. And then if you think about it, if the liberals are such a wipeout in Alberta, I noticed they won two seats. And, and, and I would look at their popular vote. I don't know if it was up or down, but I don't think it was down dramatically if it was. All right. Uh, now, Mario, Stephen Guibo in environment and, and the reaction uh, from Alberta, obviously uh, not really surprising. I want you to weigh in on this one, too. Well, um, the reality here is uh, it's a tough job to be the federal minister of environment. Uh, we live in a province that always has protests, that always has a situation where people are dissatisfied. And since the start of the pandemic, we've had very shifting priorities on these matters. Um, it started as a protest against the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Now that it's done, the numbers really haven't moved when we asked the general population uh, it seems that uh, it's an issue that has been forgotten. If anything, what has changed is we have more people who are undecided. It's almost like we're polling people who say, are you still asking me about this? Uh, and they are very, very, um, really not into it as they were uh, just a few years ago. But then we moved on into what is going to be happening with liquefied natural gas. And we had some protests. Then we moved into all growth logging and we had some protests. Um, it's a very complex situation because you have a group of people that are definitely dissatisfied with how things are going, um, but it's not something that is going to be affecting the federal government directly anymore. Um, and I think this is definitely one of the things that made Wilkinson uh, in environment uh, very, very difficult to manage. You know, he's at natural resources now. It's a little bit more removed from some of the situations that you'll see. And what we see here is people who really want something to change when it comes to oil are happy with Gilbolt's uh, job. But you also have a significant amount of British Columbians who are dissatisfied with this. So it's not all environmentally friendly in that sense. There's uh, 30, 35, 37% of BC residents um, who consistently believe that the economy is the number one thing. So. Uh, it's not something that is blanketed over BC as far as, well, now we have a guy from Greenpeace running the show. You know, there might be some who are very satisfied at the fact that this happens, but there's also some who are terrified about its implications for jobs. Now, because you're in Vancouver in British Columbia, I wanted to ask you next about Harjad Sajan. Uh, he, he obviously underwhelmed in defense and, and a lot of people wondering why he got another portfolio. 
uh, even though it's a smaller one. But really, why are you rewarding somebody who didn't really get the job done? Well, I just think there were so many stories coming out of the first Trudeau cabinet, even international stories, uh, as far as, you know, they got an astronaut in transportation. They got a former soldier in defense. Uh, you can, it's very difficult to live up to those expectations and to the hype that that caused, especially when we continue to talk about defense in the worst possible way, which is they can't get their act together. There's a bunch of abuse going on and we continue to have these press conferences and discussions about it. You know, the best defense minister is the one that you don't hear about. And this is definitely problematic for the way he was selling himself. There were also some questions about his role in Afghanistan and how that may have been a little less than he led people to believe. Um, but I was really surprised that he kept a cabinet portfolio. Uh, you know, I think the expectation for most people from British Columbia is, you know, he'll become a backbencher and maybe in the next cabinet will do something different. So it was a demotion, but it wasn't a demotion as uh, hard as many people expected. And, and uh, Tasha, that puts Anita and and in defense and, and comes in with no background in military. Is that a concern? Well, I think it could be a concern, but I think that the Trudeau uh, realized that the greater concern was to clean up the issue of sexual misconduct in the forces. And uh, and Anders moved very swiftly on that by saying we're going to adopt the recommendations of Justice Arbour, uh, basically outsource justice beyond its traditional military form to civilian uh, justice on these issues. Uh, that's a huge step. And she's taken it very quickly. And I think the reason is because the government doesn't want this to fester. Part of that is also because Mr. Sajan is still in cabinet. Um, to the earlier point uh, Mario made, I, I was shocked too that he's there. I don't know if it's a question of representation as well for the Indo-Canadian community, if that was a concern or simply that, you know, Trudeau needed BC representation and that's he felt comfortable with Sajan staying there. But there's, uh, you know, there was a sense that Sajan was going to just get the door. Uh, you had other players like Mark Garno, you know, uh, who, uh, who who certainly hadn't <laughs> hadn't um, messed up the way Sajan did, and he got the door completely. So, where, you know, what was the rationale there? I think um, Anand, uh, it's interesting. Your poll earlier with said, you know, she was the number two choice to be to be potentially shuffled out. I don't necessarily see that. I think that um, she probably will, I would say, take cover under the Arbor recommendations, but because of that report and because of what the task that needs to be done, people will give her some space to actually accomplish those things, uh, just because also Sajan's record on it was just so bad. Uh, just to go back to the uh, the poll numbers, uh, she uh, she's second on the list, mm -hmm. uh, but that's not the number. She's at 12.4, Melanie right. Jolie's at 22.5, and, and Stephen Gwilbo at 29.2. So it, it seems a lot more people are... are positive about her at least coming in and uh, Nelson I'm wondering uh, you know when you're talking about a, a defense ministry uh, you know you've got somebody here with, with with no military background but you know are fresh eyes needed and and sometimes get the job done as opposed to those who have that background well first off it depends what the job is the thing that's catching the public's attention now is sexual misconduct in the military you know, the, mm -hmm. the whole procurement issues, which are vital and, and so important, are just too complex for the public to get a handle on. You know, they, they can grasp when you talk about 10 billion, 20 billion, but they don't know about the hardware. I think the Anita Anand appointment was terrific. And uh, I thought, and I'll tell you, look, 
you don't have to have a background in defense. I'm not sure that's an advantage. Kim Campbell uh, was the defense minister. It didn't hurt her. She became prime minister. The, uh, uh, I don't, you know, John McCallum was minister of defense. I don't think he had a military background. I agree with Tasha that you wanted to keep uh, Harjit uh, Sechen in there, although I was very unimpressed by him, probably because it ticks off the box. Oh, the Indo-Canadian community, which is vital to the liberal fortunes, still has somebody in the cabinet. And, and this also speaks to the fact that maybe all these other considerations like gender, racial diversity and region take away from the fact we should be appointing the best people, which, you know, which isn't where this conversation started. Now, now I'll tell you why I think she is a good appointment because she's got a background in governance. She's a lawyer and she handled the pre procurement file, I thought very well in terms of communications and in terms of actual things happening. Compare our procurement history to Australia. We're miles ahead. But the deeper problem in defense, the deeper problem in defense is, is the culture. And, and that's not, I think, gonna change. And that's just rooted in biology. The reality is that you get a lot of jocks that go male, that go into the military and their hormones are raging. And as we're increasing the number of women in the military, it's natural that you're going to have these kinds of situations that arise. It's not like working at the CBC. It's not like working at Imperial Oil. You've got a, a military force that's overwhelmingly made up of young people and many are very horny. Can I jump in here for a second? Sure, I jump think in that, there, Tasha. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, um, you know, women in the military, these issues go way back. This isn't just because women in the military, suddenly there are more of them. I agree there's a misogynist culture, but I think that as we, as a society in particular now in 2021, and for, you know, the Me Too movement that's been around for a number of years, this issue should have been cleaned up a long time ago. And, you know, whether people have hormones or other things, there's absolutely no excuse for this culture to have continued as long as it has. Women have been in the military a long time. Uh, this problem has been known about a long time. Successive governments had the chance to clean it up. And one of the ways of doing that would have been to have a zero tolerance policy and outsource the justice piece from the military where you know it basically wasn't meted out because you wouldn't make a complaint because your superior might be the one in fact judging you. You know, people judged each other. It was, it was impossible under those circumstances to actually get this outrooted. So I think, you know, just to say that people will come in here and have a certain mindset, I think that's also false. I think that, um, you know, young people today, hopefully, have been told that, you know, no means no. And the consent issue is a much, there's a much greater consciousness of that today than there would have been 30, 40 years ago. So I think that, you know, it's almost like giving the government a pass. Uh, Nelson, I, I don't know if that was your intent, but I really don't think that they deserve one. I think that this I issue agree. can I, be tackled and I, should have been I tackled agree. a long time ago. I agree with everything you say, everything. I lay the blame at the feet of Trudeau. He's been in power all these years. All these okay. things that you flagged were there. What did they do? Nothing. And the reason I'm not as tough on Sajjan, although I'm not impressed by him, is because, in effect, he was told, if problems like this arise, you come running to us in the PMO. He, 
he didn't have the authority actually to act on this. I, I'm happy. I think Anita Anand will, because I think this has really hurt the liberals politically among women. And I agree with your whole analysis. Yeah. There we go. See, we all get along, don't we? Now, Mariel, we're not going to leave you out here. Foreign Affairs is now led by Melanie Jolie. And, and, and you know, there's been a couple of portfolios she had that has not done very well. Uh, is this just rewarding a good soldier or what's she bringing to the table for Foreign Affairs? I think it's rewarding a good soldier more than anything. Uh, there's an expectation. I think we go back to what Nelson was talking about. Uh, you need to have people from Quebec in high profile positions. This might be one of the situations that Justin Trudeau is thinking about. And also the idea of having something that is flashy. You know, we have a woman in defense, we have a woman in foreign affairs. Uh, it's the idea of talking about this in a way where it's not only some sort of tokenism that you have half of your cabinet uh, being men and half of your cabinet being women. You know, They are in good positions, they are going to be making calls that are important. Now, it really depends on what happens after COP26. Uh, there's going to be an expectation about what the government is going to be doing and how it can actually salvage anything with the environmental movement. So I think uh, the jury's out on that one. You know, We might have a situation where the phone calls will come. We still have discussions with the United States. We're still dealing with the ramifications of the NAFTA renegotiations under Donald Trump. Um, she's going to be tested. And I think that will be the moment when we'll figure out um, if this was the right call or not. Mm. All right, uh, Tasha, in looking at the uh, the setup for the cabinet, which uh, was the biggest surprise to you and why? Uh, well, I would say Jolie was a surprise um, based on her n really inadequate performance, I would say, especially on the Netflix file um, and Heritage. She, she really, I was, I was surprised she was given this. The fact she didn't go to COP26 to me uh, <laughs> is an indication the government's not 100% confident in her. You know, she said she had to study up. Okay. Um, but, you know, you, you presumably if somebody was going to be in your cabinet, you think they'd have enough to carry them at least through this conference and then, you know, keep studying on the side because it's, it's a major national international event. It, to me, it tells me that Trudeau is actually still going to be the foreign minister, so to speak, not her. Um, and uh, Sajan, we already touched on. I was very surprised that he was still in cabinet. Uh, Nelson, what uh, was the biggest surprise to you uh, with this cabinet? Well, I agree with Tasha. I mean, appointing Jolie, but even the bigger surprise is Mark Garneau got dumped. And I don't know what happened there. Now, I suspect he's a principled guy and he had some serious disagreements, but I'm speculating with Trudeau. And as Tasha says, Trudeau intends to run foreign policy out of his office, which is reasonable. I mean, that when you're dealing with foreign leaders, uh, the person who counts at summits is the prime minister, but it is very telling that she wasn't even, hasn't been at the COP26 conference, which is where she could have gotten to meet other foreign ministers, like the Russian foreign minister who, who's there. So, um, look, the big thing is, is she going to last in this position more than a year? No matter how she performs, because Trudeau just hasn't taken that portfolio Seriously, he's treating it as if you're the Minister of Forestry. Once upon a time, that was the most prestigious department in the government. Now, nah, it's run out of the PMO foreign policy. And uh, Mario, uh, who, which cabinet minister was the biggest surprise for you? Well, uh, not to mention uh, the ones that have already been talked mm -hmm. about. Sure. But you know, from, from a different standpoint, 
I think Karina Gould in families, children, and social development. Uh, this could be a major breakthrough for the government if they get the $10 a day childcare program implemented in the entire country. And if she's going to be the one cutting those ribbons, I think she's somebody to watch for the next one. All right. Well, folks, I want to thank you for joining us for today's Unpublished TV and our look at the federal cabinet, Tasha Carradine, public policy analyst and public uh, political commentator. Mario Canseco is the president of Research Co. in Vancouver and Nelson Wiseman, professor of political science at the University of Toronto. Coming up on the next Unpublished TV, COP26 got plenty of headlines. Will it accomplish anything? Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.